Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast today. My name is Terry Fletcher. I guess I should say happy March. I can't believe we're already in the third month of the year. And what's funny is that this week in Southern California, where you know I'm based, we had some snow. I mean, it was crazy. I was actually doing an on-demand webinar for one of the larger payers out there. And at the very end, I was like, oh my gosh, there's snow outside my window. So that was weird. It didn't stick, but just the fact that we got to see snow flurries and it coming down and my friends about 10 miles away had hail and then there was thunder and lightning that came about an hour later. And then it was nice and sunny. (laughs) So no matter what you think about the climate, oh my gosh, it's kind of weird right now. So anyway, I hope those of you that are on the East Coast are finding some relief from all that snow. And from what I hear, it's sometimes more mild out there than it is here in uh, on the West Coast. So, so let's get started today. So we have uh, some things to cover, and I wanted to really talk to you today about a topic that's come up, and it hasn't come up for me for a while, but it is something that I, I just wanted to address because I think there's some falsehoods about it, and I think it's important that we, you know, we really talk about making sure that we're accurate in our coding and understanding what payers and Medicare will look for if you're not accurate. So we always focus on overcoding. I mean, we know we find it, we know it's there. And I I came up with this issue, and this is actually from a society I belong to. And it was, it it started off as a prior authorization issue. And then it came out as uh, a, a coding issue. And let me explain. So there were, somebody asked for thoughts on prior authorization and how a provider gets their, their PA. And it was interesting because it seemed like this provider in particular, this physician, only put in the basics. So not just the physician, but the person that obviously handles prior authorizations in their practice. And so let's say they were going to do an endoscopy or they were going to do, you know, a um, an arthroscopy or some kind of service, either diagnostic that could lead to surgical or whatever. But the inference was that the person that was in charge of that, again, I'm going to put it on the physician because it's your practice, they really only got the basics. So they just put in the authorization for the endoscopy procedure. But then once they were in the procedure room or the OR, they ended up doing an endoscopy with biopsy, which we know that happens. I mean, you know, I'm my number one specialist cardiology. We do a lot of heart cath. We call them cath possibles that lead to stenting or intervention. Um, I also do GI, so we do a lot of endoscopy screenings that lead to polyp removals. Um, In ortho, you can do a diagnostic arthroscopy that can lead to a rotator cuff repair and so forth. So I'm hoping that a lot of the prior authorization staff out there, they are putting in all possible scenarios that they know of that could happen, and so you're covering your bases. Well, this scenario, that didn't happen. So they, they had a uh, endoscopy and the uh, code for with biopsy was not part of that authorization. So um, they got a denial or weren't able to, to get payment for that. So the question came up is, well, can I downcode, and I'm air quoting, the procedure and just bill the endoscopy since this was technically performed and not the code for the CPT endoscopy with biopsy? So a lot of people said, I think the most of the comments were kind of generally neutral because it was on a listserv and the comments were something to the effect that, you know, 
basically bashing the PA process, prior authorization. And I understand it's frustrating. It's time consuming. It's a pain in the butt. And I get that. But this wasn't a fail of that process. This was a fail of the practice, the client understanding, the physician understanding that you have to try and capture everything in the prior authorization. And what I like to call it is all anticipated scenarios. Now you may not get everything. I know, for example, in cardiology, we'll put in for a heart cath and, and possible intervention, and then they inject the the graph, saphenous graph. So we didn't have that, that upcode, if you will, of that additional uh, level. But you can usually, if it's part of the consent for the patient, you can usually appeal it or fight it. But my my problem with this whole scenario was basically trying to capture some revenue for a provider that didn't do their job. So to to me, that's rewarding a practice in in you know kind of in default with a lower service instead of using this as an education moment. So as a, as you know, kind of a this is what you you have to do. Otherwise, look what happens. And I don't like to give credit where credit isn't due. And so my problem with this is, first of all, I think you're going to have a problem with, let's say that you did just code the endoscopy. And what happens if that patient's biopsy comes out to be positive for cancer? And now the patient needs more surgery, possibly an inpatient hospital stay or some kind of facility stay, and the list goes on. And there's no record of an actual biopsy being done, except now you do have a pathology report, which doesn't match what was actually reported from the surgeon or the the physician. Now this is billed incorrectly, and there will be a payer inquiry as to how did you find out the patient had cancer if there was no biopsy done, done just a, you know, an endoscopy. The second thing is that I'm looking at the language that is discussed in the Medicare example and also in the American Medical Association's Principles of CPT Coding, 9th edition. So they talk about the intentional misrepresentation of codes. And what that means is that is the falsification um, that was an intimus, I'm sorry, (laughs) let me try again. That is the falsification was an innocent mistake but nonetheless representative. Okay. So, and I'm talking about error, medical coding errors when they fall into categories of fraud and abuse. So if you falsify something, that's an innocent mistake, but you still do it, then that's still a problem. But an example of abuse could involve coding for either a more complex service that was performed or undercoding because it's intentionally trying to get around what wasn't done to begin with. And let's, let's also take a look at the Medicare CMS definition of fraud under the fraud, waste, and abuse. And I'm quoting, it says, in general, fraud is defined as making false statements or representations of material facts to obtain some benefit, didn't say all the benefits, some benefit or payment for which no entitlement would otherwise exist. These acts may be committed either for the person's own benefit or for the benefit of some other party. In other words, fraud includes the obtaining of something of value through misrepresentation or concealment of material facts. Well, right there, this to me speaks not only of undercoding, but of miscoding just to get money. So deliberately undercoding, in my professional opinion, and in reality, is making a false statement about the services provided just so you can get paid. 
And this to me also reflects the misrepresentation of the facts. And it fits in with the CMS uh, definition of misusing codes on a claim. And, you know, under the False Claim Act, they, they also talk about you could be held liable for submitting claims to Medicare for medical services that you know were not provided. So you technically didn't just provide an endoscopy. Again, in my opinion, you provided an endoscopy with biopsy. So to try and just get some money for a physician because they didn't fill out the you know pre-auth correctly or their staff didn't, I think you're heading down the really terrible road. You know, it's it reminds me of physicians who, you know, their friends of friends come in and let's say it's a general surgeon. And they say, you know, I'm not going to charge you for your biopsy today. Don't worry about it. You know, this is all gratis. And then it comes back positive or there was a facility charge or they need more services or there's some med legal situation where they need records and copies of that and you didn't charge them. And remember, under Medicare, you can't do it anyway because that could be considered an inducement. You're giving them free services so they refer patients to you. So I just want to remind everybody that overcoding how awful it is and how much we don't like it. And we're constantly trying to explain to our providers, our physicians, our our NPPs, that it's important to make sure that we code accurately. Down coding, under coding, trying to capture it just for money is wrong. You can't do that. And I think you, you would find yourself in a really compromised situation if you tried to. So that's, that's definitely my position on that. And I just want to make sure that you're aware of that if that ever is a scenario that comes up in your practice. Because I really don't think a lot of people think about, um, you know, fraud, waste and abuse as undercoding. They think that they're saving money or something for the payer. And even though maybe you are, you're, you're not doing yourself a favor by reporting things incorrectly. So we always want to be as accurate as possible and make sure that we are not over, under, or manipulating the situation so that we can just get paid. And whenever you do anything by, you know, that has the um, intent because of money, I, you know, you've heard me say this, follow the money. That's always a problem. So we can't do things just to get paid. We have to do them correctly. It's kind of like, how many of you have heard people when you know they're doing something incorrect and you've heard them say, well, I get paid. <laughs> just because you get paid doesn't make it correct. And so we can't use that just for the overcoders out there or the fraudulent coders. We have to also talk about the undercoders or people who are trying to get around the system. And I would never want you to be in that position. Okay. So let's take a look at some coding issues. So my coding question, or I should say my, my coding advice today comes in the orthopedic sense. And this was, is with arthroscopic shoulder procedures. So for those of us that code for shoulders and have been coding for those for a long time, believe me, they've been our nightmare for years, especially when we're talking about debridements. So then 29823, for example, that's arthroscopic shoulder, surgical debridement, extensive, three or more discrete structures. And actually in 2017, what was nice is that we had an update in CPT um, that was very helpful uh, when it came to descriptions. And also we had an update in NCCI policy manual, so the correct coding initiative, to allow the debridement when other arthroscopic procedures are on what they call the ipsilateral shoulder, which means the, the same shoulder. And we didn't get that before. 
and you would need a 59 modifier. But this revision kind of really helped uh, give leeway to shoulders having separate different areas and indicated that debridement performed in a different area of the same shoulder. So, you know, you, you have the 29824, 29827 rotator cuff, and then also possibly 29828. But at this point, code combinations were part of this bundling software, as you probably know, and we had a terrible time trying to get paid for debridements with that. Now, it doesn't mean that you should always code 29823, let's say with an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair 29827, or with a bicep tenonesis of 29828. But if your surgeon is performing a debridement of the labrum, another separate tendon, or a chondroplasty of the glenoid humeral head, you should investigate, and regardless of lack of an NCCI edit, especially since effective January 1st um, of 2021, the description for CPT 29823 was really revised. So you could possibly use that 59 modifier to unbundle the code pair and look and make sure that when you investigate that the documentation can support both services. Otherwise, uh, you could be missing some revenue for your physician. And that's the thing, you know, you want to, we call it yield and investigate for the possibility of using that 59 modifier to unbundle a code pair. We don't want you to do it on a regular basis, but we don't want you to miss out on it when the rules and the regulatory effort says that we can do it. And then you also have your lobbying body like the AOS saying that this is appropriate when that happens. And then we also had a new code descriptor uh, in CPT. So shoulders are very tricky to code from an arthroscopic perspective, and you want to make sure you can capture as much as uh, possible. And then also make sure that you're using the right modifiers. So a lot of times, you, if you look at the parenthetical direction in CPT underneath some of the arthroscopic shoulder procedures in the 29,000 section, it'll either tell you 59 or 51 modifier, and it'll tell you um, if you can reported at all. And a lot of times CPT doesn't even speak to, to bundled issues. So it's kind of nice when we get some direction at least, and then we can follow up with our uh, regulatory efforts or what Medicare is doing or what the, the other payer is doing as well. Okay, so I wanted to shout out a couple more people just from I've had such positive information lately. So Brenda, Sheila R, Brenda K, uh, Sonel, uh, Dr. Raymer, um, Sarah, Sarah, I appreciate your information as well. Uh, Kathleen, Natasha, D. I mean, just, you, you know, I really appreciate you guys just giving me some of those positive emails and direct messages and letting me, you know, know what you're thinking as far as the CodeCast. Also, thank you for those of you that we had a, an, uh, an episode with the CodeCast a couple weeks ago. And I think it was Sheila that, that sent, gave me that, I, you know, in, uh, insider heads up saying, hey, it's not playing. And you're right. We had a corrupt file. We had to go back in. Luckily, we were able to recover it. And my uh, producer, shout out to Joe Kuzma, he was able to fix that for me right away. So um, I appreciate him as well. Also, there's a couple of things coming down the pike. I'm sure you're aware of it when it comes to telehealth, since the public health emergency is coming to a close here in the next couple of months. Um, make sure that you are either signed up for my quarterly Medicare update, which on the nschbc.org website, you can find that. That's going to be March 28th. If you prefer going to McVeigh seminars, that'll be a week before on March 21st. Um, I'm also going to be speaking at the NAMIS 
Um, so the National Association of, what is that, <laughs> of Medical Auditing Specialists. Okay, I always forget their acronym definition uh, on the April uh, 4th, 5th and 6th. So I'm on the 5th uh, with actually my cousins, um, Brianna Santoli. And we're going to be, she's a litigator for healthcare out of New Jersey. And we're going to be talking about telehealth regulations and all that as well. So a lot of information, but just a, for example, something small that I'll just kind of put a, put a little you know hint out there for you. For those of you that are billing for, let's say, phone calls right now, so audio only, 99441 to 443, well, just know that under the PHE, they've allowed it for new and established patients. Well, once the public health emergency ends, they're not going to allow it for new patients anymore. That is not extended through 2024 or even through the end of the year. So the rules say that it has to be the same as what the CPT book descripts. So not only are you going to have that seven-day which has already been there, but that seven day global service, you can't have, um, you can't have one of those if the, if the patient has come in within the last seven days, but it has to be an established patient to the practice. So those kinds of things are going to change. And we want to make sure that we're understanding what completely drop dead ends once, you know, we hit May 12th. And so I think that some people think that everything's extended through the end of 2024, and that is not the case. So please pick up one of our, uh, one of my webinars, and hopefully I also have it online on my website at terryfletcher.net if you just want to listen to On Demand. I'm more than happy to share that with you as well. So anyway, hopefully everyone is getting their education, understanding what's going on with some of the things that are going to end and that you're kept catching up on all of your podcasts. So a couple of things, if you haven't listened to the Compliance Guy podcast with myself and Sean Weiss, uh, we also have a hashtag Terry Tuesday segment every Tuesday. And then I'm on a panel discussion with uh, the Compliance Guy Monday panel, and that's on Mondays. And again, we have five of us. So Stephanie Allard, Christine Hall, myself, uh, Scott Kraft, and Paul Spencer, and uh, Sean Weiss. So take a look, take a listen to that's at four o'clock Eastern on Mondays. Um, but happy to have you. So hopefully everyone's getting their, their podcast fill and getting ready for spring. So we're, we're excited about that. All right, everyone, make it a great rest of your week, make it a great day. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma. Music producer Assassin Music. <laughs>